0: Yes, we are back. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of the Sock Takes Pod. This is episode 38. We are joined today by a couple of the usual suspects and one guest. I'll start with our our normal panel. We've got the one and only sweetest of babies, Mr. Aaron Gunyon, the fresh father, fresh into fatherhood as of 2017. Um, How's that going for you, Aaron?
1: Well, um, it's going pretty pretty solidly. I have not lost the baby at any point. I thought that was going <laughs> to be something that I would have to worry about, but five-month-old baby, uh, she doesn't move around a whole lot, so it's pretty easy to keep track of her. And I like how you introduced this as Special Edition Episode 38. I think they're all special, but Absolutely. this is going to be a special one.
0: Cool. So no, uh, no calls over the loudspeaker in the mall. of uh, Missing Piper Gunyon.
1: piper is is, i'm gonna get a gps tracker a chip probably at some point and have it embedded you know behind her ears something like in the sci-fi movies i'm not gonna tell her about it because i don't want her to know um it'll be an interesting upbringing this kid's in for a treat
0: excellent and also on the panel today our regular staff writer he is. He has several hobbies: dogs, long walks on the beach, and virtue signaling. It's Mr. Napoon Chopra. How's it going, Napoon?
2: <laughs> virtue signaling. I when I was set, I was told that on Twitter. I had to look it up. I actually didn't know what it means. But uh, yeah, I'm. I'm all about that virtue signaling. Pleasure to join you guys. Uh, excited about our guest today. So uh, thanks. Let's do 38.
0: And joining us today as our guest is. Uh, writer for W R A L Sports, also does a great show on the Inverted Triangle Soccer Podcast. It is Neil Morris. How's it going, Neil?
3: I'm doing great, KJ. And I, I think it's important to note that the I only appear on special editions of podcasts, so that's why you, <laughs> the way you did.
0: All right. Well, it's part of my
3: contract with uh, with yeah. some, I guess.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, nice fair enough. second best, uh, second best podcast uh, about NASL all of last year after ours, but we're glad <laughs> you're joining us anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Speak, speaking of that, um, the Sock Takes Pod, we were voted on Reddit one of the final three podcasts along with Neil's um, Inverted Triangle Podcast and Magic City Soccer Podcast. So we're honored to be one of those three. Um, unfortunately, like we just, Napoon just mentioned, we're stuck with Neil. So once again, we will not have a chance to be the best podcast in the league that Indy 11 is in. So, but I don't know, that's man. a bullet we're the, prepared to bite.
2: I am pretty sure that the votes were rigged. I mean, I, I don't like to be a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, but let's be honest, there's no way Neil's podcast is better than Sock Take. So I think the r- votes were rigged and I am ready to bring through litigation against NASL Reddit.
3: I'm just happy you guys decided to go slumming with me today. I appreciate it. You
1: know what? I think we should do in theme with the NASL and the podcast. And we should not podcast until the deal has been resolved as to who actually is the best podcast. Um, we will go through arbitration and litigation and appeal after appeal. I'll- I'll settle for
3: an un- I'll settle for an un- anchor man style battle royale. I think <laughs> cool.
2: I'll bring the I'll bring the trident.
1: Uh, <laughs> I was gonna call the okay, trident.
2: <laughs> okay, then well, I'll b- I'll be the one that you guys can say if we have ourselves a bilingual blood fest.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this is pretty nerdy, but let's talk <laughs> soccer anyway.
0: Let's talk soccer. So one of the reasons we wanted to get Neil back on the <clears throat> podcast is because he's providing excellent soccer coverage out there in the Carolinas. And he has some firsthand knowledge of covering the new Indy 11 head coach, Martin Rennie. Uh, the hiring was just announced earlier this week. I think Monday was it. Um, but yeah, Neil has had the opportunity to to cover Rennie up close and personal. So what better time to get some very informed opinions about the new Indy 11 coach than from someone who has uh, multiple years covered him. So, Let's just jump right into it, Neil, and kick it over to you. But just give us an overview of kind of what we can expect from Martin Rennie as a head coach. Uh,
3: you can expect again. I think for, for, for further specificity, I, you know when I first started covering, in fact, watching soccer was the middle of two thousand nine. It was uh, Rennie's uh, Carolina RailHawks in Cary. It was his first year in Cary. And and I ended up covering him and the team for the next two and a half years. So uh, I was pretty knee deep in, into into him and the team from '9 through 2011 when he left uh, to take the job with the Vancouver uh, Whitecaps when they after they had jumped to MLS. Uh, what can you can expect? So a lot of this is is things that i've witnessed a lot of this is interpretation of his resume a lot of it is interpretation of what happened after he left Car- uh, carolina you know it's been a while so maybe he's sort of his approach to things has changed but i think we see in 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 soccer and, and in life that, that, that most of the time folks don't change a whole lot in their approach to things uh whether it's players or managers or, or front office or even journalists um uh, you know, a couple of things that strike me about, about Martin, and I'll, I'll, you know, there, there's good and there's, there's not so good. And, and I think it's probably good to talk about all of it just so, for the sake of, 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 of being complete. Uh, on, on the good side, what the one thing you can expect out of the jump, uh, if history is any guide, is that your team is going to get better immediately. Um, that has been the hallmark of every stop along his, his coaching way. Uh, Going back to his one and only year in PDL in twenty in two thousand and five, uh, when he, he coached a team that that won their division and qualified for the U.S. Open Cup, to taking over Cleveland City Stars in USL two for two years, uh, finishing second in in the table the first year, winning the league championship the next. Um. Skipping past Carolina when he went to Vancouver, he took over a team that had been that was the worst in the league, and then the next year they made the playoffs. Uh, and when he went to South Korea, even, uh, he, he took a brand new team in the second division and won 16 games in his first season. Uh, going to the Railhawks, he, you know, the Railhawks were in their third year of existence when he came to carry and had been uh, pretty lowly in the USL1 standings the year before he arrived. The team had scored 34 goals and given up 43. Uh, his very first season, and, and and by the way, they finished 8th uh, in the 11-team USL 1. The very next year, they finished 2nd in the table behind the Timbers. Uh, their, their goal score jumped from 34 to 43. And more instructively, their goals allowed dropped from 43 to 19. Uh, that is martin uh you can expect a guy who is going to be who's going to bring instant success to your team now how that translates to years two three and beyond is always the big question Martin, when it comes to martin uh you're going to have a guy who has a keen 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 eye for talent uh the, the one thing i did not doubt when it came to martin Rennie is when he brought in a new player i mean a lot of times these coaches bring in new players and i can speak to the current situation in North Carolina. You know, you you see some new signing and you just go, oh, okay, maybe this guy will be interesting. Whenever Martin brought in a new guy, it was a cause for interest because it got to a point where you just knew the guy could, could, could find talent and could identify talent.
2: Neil, um, the players he, he signs, what is the profile of these players? Do they tend to be younger, more experienced? Does he like a specific kind of player with flair or tactically uh resilient um tell us about the profile of player that martin rennie looks for
3: uh a little bit all over the place but they're all going to fit whatever his his style is and again it's hard to sort of it's very tactical it's very regimented uh he will allow players to play with flair if they deserve it uh but otherwise he he's he he likes his formations and he picks players who can fill those roles, which I think in the lower division soccer is a good thing. Uh, it's kind of like little league baseball. You know, if you have a pitcher that can throw a fastball, if you have a pitcher that can throw a strike, he's going to be a success. So in lower division soccer, it's it's kind of like if you if you have a guy who can fill his role ably, that's that he's going to he's going to translate to the team pretty well. Um, you know, the profile of some of the players he brings in I remember when he came here in 09 and again the soccer landscape has changed so it may be a bit different now and again with the, with the over with the upheaval of, the, of NASL, there's a lot of players on the market from the league but I remember when he came here in 09 uh, he brought in very few players from other teams in the league in other words he didn't do a whole lot of poaching. Uh, he brought a lot of players from Cleveland City where he had managed uh, he signed a lot of MLS castoffs. So I would watch a lot of that. Uh, And they all turned out, almost all of them turned out to be good. Uh, And the other thing that he did quite well, especially in the second and the third years, is he he somehow cast a net and would bring in guys from Scotland or other parts of Europe uh, who nobody ever heard of. Uh, I don't know what his connections were. I don't know how he found them, but he would find these diamonds in the rough. Uh, and would would bring them in. I mean, in the first year, again, some of these names may not mean a may not mean a whole lot uh, to you. Maybe they do, um, but he brought Kay, you know Caleb Patterson Sewell in, uh, who was with Jacksonville Armada last year. Rennie brought him to USL One. Greg Shields from Scotland, who's still an assistant with Carolina, one of the best right backs I've seen. Um, uh, Daniel Palladini and Josh Gardner, who were MLS castoffs. Uh, same thing with Gregory Richardson. Brad Russin—I should mention him. Brad Russin is still dining out on his two to three years here at Carolina, uh, but but he was developed into one of the best defenders in the league under Martin. Uh, so much so that they were able to sell him off to a, a, a team in Europe during the 2011 season for money. Uh, but that you know Martin found him out in California, out of out of the the amateur leagues. Um, I mean, that's Amir Lowry, another player who came in, a hard-nosed uh, central defender. I mean, that's, you know, and, and then there was some interesting signings later on that I won't bore you with all the roster of signings. But, but that, that's, you know, that, probably one of the most interesting ones. I think I should probably bring this up. Uh, in 2010, he brought Etienne Bavara into the Americas. <laughs> uh, that Martin was the one that found him in, in Malta. And we kept hearing about this multi-striker, as they said, who was being brought in. Uh, and Etienne, as much of a headache as he turned out to be at various stops along the way, was tremendous in Carolina. He was also a headache. Um, but that's that, that. You know, that's that. Probably dovetails into another aspect of Martin that I'll talk about later. But you know, the the, the two things that you well, there's three things you can expect out of the shoot if history is a guide. He's a keen identifier of talent. uh, And there will be massive upheaval in your first season. If you're emotionally attached to a player, get off of it. uh, Because Martin (laughs) is going to bring in who Martin wants to bring in. And he has no attachments to nostalgia or history or anything else. And the contractual upheaval right now of the NESL to USL is just going to aid him in that endeavor.
2: Aaron, Aaron, before we dig into what... Uh, what Neil's talking about in terms of player people I think this is a good time for you to let us know what you know about the current status of the the Indy 11 squad
1: what I know about the current status of the Indy 11 squad is that there are no confirmed signings for Indy 11 Um, there were some players that had contracts uh, options what was options picked up uh, before the switch of leagues But after the switch, there has there has been no official announcement Uh, just a few weeks ago or a few days ago when the team made their announcement and did the official, you know, website hosting switch. The Indy 11 roster page flashed up three names that many Indy 11 fans think are safe and in the clear. Those names are Brad Ring, Ben Spies and David Goldsmith. If you go to that website today, those three names have been removed from the website and they are also not listed on the USL transfer page. So currently Indy 11, to my knowledge, has has no official players on their roster.
2: So, Neil, what I want to ask you about next was from your perspective. How when uh, when Rennie came to Carolina, what was your guys budget at the time? Because from everything Neil, KJ, and I have heard, the budget for Indy 11 is going to be uh, cut drastically once more. And, and for context for our listeners, the budget was uh, somewhere mid-level uh, two years ago. Last year, it was this, we had the second lowest budget in the NASL, um, which, of course, was probably a decent budget in the USL. But that budget is going to be cut from that again this year. So, uh, so Neil, tell us a little bit about budgetary requirements, or uh, what budgetary uh, allowances were in place when Rennie joined Carolina?
3: That's a good question. Uh, th- when Rennie came here in 2009, it coincided with a change in ownership at Carolina. Uh, the, the Rochester conglomerate that formed the team back in 2007 uh, sold the team to Selby Wellman at, after the, or at least sold a majority stake in the club. Uh, to Selby Wellman who was a minority owner at the time after the 08 season Selby took over Brian Wellman his son became club president and they let go of Scotty Schweitzer who had been the manager of the Railhawks their first two years when they were not performing well at all and they cast a net wide and, and found Martin out at Cleveland City and brought him to to carry uh, very good hire and uh, what also happened with the Wellmans, uh, you know, there's lots I could talk about about that, but I'm not going to bore you. But
2: they, mm-hmm. right, but we, like, we should link, we should link to Neil's uh, article that he wrote <laughs> back then. Neil, will, right. will you definitely share that with us and we'll tweet sure. it out because it, it provides some really important context for what Neil is talking about. But sorry, and there's, continue. A, little,
3: and there's a little bit about Martin in there too, although I didn't didn't talk about a lot about him in that article because of, well, was it wasn't the exclusive focus. Uh, but maybe we'll hit on some of that today. But when the Wellmans came in, they loosened the purse strings on the budget quite a on the player budget quite a bit. Now, the, the funny thing is that the budget of the rest of the front office, whether it was advertising or everything else, was very tightly wrong. Uh, but it's a percentage of the budget. You know, player budget's always a large percentage of the overall club budget. Well, it was an even bigger percentage in Carolina. Now, we're not we're not talking about as far as dollars themselves we're not talking about you know miami fc or even fc cincinnati money i mean that's just evolved over time but in relation to the rest of usl carolina's player budget was at or near the top Uh, now that doesn't mean that you know that that again it didn't translate to poaching players from other teams uh there was only only a very couple of instances of that uh, these were play. What what Martin would do is scout wide, bring in guys from overseas, bring in uh sort of MLS tweeners, uh, who maybe could find as good or, or more money and definitely more playing time at Carolina as they could at some other MLS team. This is back in 09, uh, so that that's where the budget went to, uh, but they would. They would roll, and you know, by the 2010 season, the overall roster size had swollen quite a bit. Uh, there, there was there were a lot of players on that roster, and that created a bit of a of a of a of a blowback in the locker room because, uh, as as players have told me from that era, you know, you could be starting one game and then find yourself inactive for two or three games in a row and not have any idea why. It was just a, you know, Martin would find, as I used to like to call it, he'd find a shiny object and go get it. Um, and so I, that's an important context. I don't know exactly what his budget was in Vancouver, although he did a similar thing when he went there. There was, was a big drain of the of the players who had been there. He brought in a lot of guys he wanted to and had instant, instant success, although he plateaued in year two. So, you know, it'll be interesting about the indie situation. If what you're saying about your budget is correct, it'll be interesting to see a) how Martin navigates that, because I don't—I'm sure he isn't going to like it, and b) it's going to be interesting to see how he f- figures out ways to push that envelope. Which, knowing Martin, uh, he will.
0: Well, Neil, one thing that jumped out to me that you mentioned a little uh, mentioned a little while ago that I think a lot of our Indy 11 listeners might kind of have their their face buried in their palms sobbing right now, um, was that he tends to be a coach that will have a very high rate of turnover in the first year. Um, I know Indy fans are absolutely going to loathe hearing that. They are, without a doubt, our supporters are emotionally attached, probably to a fault, almost way too emotionally attached, I'd say, to a lot of the players. So I'm sure that some of our listeners might shudder once they hear that comment. And furthermore, you kind of made it seem um, like while Rennie loves a good reclamation project, um, it almost seemed like you were kind of building up to where after he stays at a club for two, three years, um, eventually things might not always turn out so well. So um, can you just talk about that transition, how he he achieves this immediate success? um, And then not to say his teams fall apart, because I know like in Vancouver, he took the team to the playoffs, and then the final year that he ultimately was fired, his record was close to 500. I don't have it right in front of me, but it wasn't a horrendous record. Um, in fact, most coaches might have been able to skate by and not get fired with um, results like that. But um, just talk about what do you think his his personality traits or his coaching traits um, that kind of make his teams not necessarily sustain success once they achieve it.
3: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, what you said about his second year in Vancouver—they they they didn't make the playoffs like they did the first year, but their overall points were actually five points higher than the first year. They actually had more points the second year than the first year, and he still got sacked. Um, And and I
0: probably so what does that
3: say? So
1: what does that say about a coach who only has two years with the club and doesn't? just you know completely tank in second season and they still let him go i mean that points me to raise questions about personality conflicts or or you other know, things with the team
3: well here here's where i get into a, a bit of a discussion um and again this
1: the podcast
3: yeah and i'll let me let me make sure i i you know i don't i don't feel the need to add a disclaimer but i'm going to anyway i love martin martin Covering Martin and, and his team was fascinating. He's, a, he's a, not only is he a good identifier of talent, he's a keen soccer mind. He's a very confident soccer mind. He is very confident in his approach to things, um, and he's a salesman. Uh, and, that, and that's meant to be in a good way. He has a background in sales. He used to be in, you know, when when he after his playing career, he was he was in pharmaceutical sales for. Him. His brother, I believe, was a reporter overseas uh, in Scotland. So he. He knows his way around the PR department, let's just put it that way. Um, and that's probably a, an important thing to remember. Um, the thing about Martin, and a lot of this is supposition, and some of it is stuff that I've heard directly. Um, while he's very confident in his approach, which I think lends well to his team's performance, uh, and while he's a very keen identifier of talent, as I've already talked about. Uh, His his man management is an interesting mix. Uh, On the one hand, I think he believes that he can manage or salvage anybody. Um, And I'll give you a great example of that. Uh, The 2011 Railhawks team, which won the regular season in NASL, uh, won 10 games in a row uh, in the first half of the season. Not not undefeated. Won ten games in a row. Was a team that was highlighted by Etienne Babara, Pablo Campos, uh, Chris Nurse, and Johnny Steele. I mean, those were regulars on that team. Now, I mean, if you put together an all tempestuous NASL All-Star team, <laughs> those four guys would be at the, at the forefront. Uh, And even Nick Zimmerman, who turned out to be a a very jovial guy, but his first year he was a little surly. He was on that team. Um, And somehow Martin, you know, Martin kept Etienne Babara, who no manager has ever been able to deal with. He sort of managed Etienne through his highs and his lows, and Etienne was a great scorer with Carolina. Martin believes that he can manage any guy individually. But Martin, and this is something that other players have told me, he's very non-confrontational as well. And what I mean by that is, you know, players, like I said, when the roster sort of balloons and you'll find yourself in the lineup and then out of the lineup, you know, a lot of the reason that some players like playing for a guy like Colin Clark is because if you ask Colin why are you not playing, he'll tell you. What I heard about Martin was you would ask and not get an answer answer or he wants you to talk to the assistant coach or there would be sort of this the you know martin didn't like conflict and so you know sometimes players would be uncertain about their position or their or their whatnot and would never have a, a firm grasp on it which you understand in a team concept especially a soccer concept that can be sort of corrosive over time uh, so you end up having sort of a lot of players on the roster so a little bit of uncertainty about where you individual players stand And then over time, that just that can sort of eat away uh, at the locker room. And I have heard from players who followed him to to Vancouver that that was part of the problem in Vancouver. I know it was part of the problem in in Carolina, uh, but it never came time to come to full fruition because he had a great season in 2011 and and found a good job with 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 Vancouver. Uh, So that that's sort of the good and the bad when it when it comes to Martin, uh, individually, he feels like he can manage any player and he's probably right. Uh, he he understands certain, you can't just treat all players with the same, same approach. Uh, but at the same time, sort of his overall locker management, locker room management, that is where I have heard on multiple occasions that things fell a bit short, especially when he starts sort of, pulling players from here and there and tinkering with the lineups uh all of which on paper are comp- and even in, in in results are completely justifiable uh but at the same time you, you have to be mindful uh of, of player personalities in the locker room dynamic uh and and i've heard that 20 the 2010 season in carolina was probably the the the, 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 the best and worst example of what I'm talking about. And I've heard on many occasions that, you know, all that, that, that team performed well, uh, but what kept the locker room from kind of splintering apart were, were the assistant coaches, who at the time were Paul Ritchie and Dewan Bader, uh, that it, they ended up being the sounding board for the players because Martin either didn't or didn't want to be one
2: or the other. So, Neil, you, you talk about the locker room and uh, handling big players, and this is perfect uh, leads perfectly to my next question. Uh, a new story that Sock Takes broke um, late last week was that Alexis Sanchez is now signing for Indy 11. And I'm wondering what your <laughs> thoughts are on how Martin Rennie will handle Alexis Sanchez. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think that perfectly
3: fits He's gonna handle him with uh, kid gloves and make him seem like the, the best player in the world. Uh, and he's going to play every game and and lead the team in goals, and then uh, everybody else is going to be expendable on the roster.
2: <laughs> Sounds about right. Uh, so, but but come back to a serious. Well, obviously, Alexis Sanchez doing d eleven. It was serious, but something that's slightly serious also is one of the complaints I've uh, heard about Martin Rennie in my conversations with people like yourself who have covered him longer than uh, the three of us have. Uh, is that he he plays a style of football that can be dour and predictable at times. That he that the, the most common thing I've heard is that he's obsessed with defensive midfielders. Now, as someone who loves defensive midfielders myself, that's not a not a criticism per se. But I think what it's trying to get at is that the football, the quality of football, the style of football might be effective as opposed to entertaining. Um, use euphemism so your thoughts on that is there is that accurate from what you saw or is that an unfair assessment
3: uh yes and no i think his style of play and his approach is that way but that's because i think he and again you're probably catching me at a bad time to ask me this question because i would love to have someone in carolina right now who seems to put a premium on quality defenders um uh, we've had some here in the last few years, but you know, Martin is one of those coaches that would go out and spend money on a defender. I mean, <laughs> you know, a lot of coaches you see they end up being kind of plug-ins and afterthoughts, especially in the lower division level. Martin would go out and find good defenders who filled their roles, and I would love to see that again. And I fell in love with with the notion of of having a, a stable full of defensive midfielders. Probably because I covered the team when Martin was here and he had, you know, everybody from he brought in everybody from Amir Lowry to Chris Nurse to to uh, another player he found was Marcus Davidson, who's still playing in Charlotte. Uh, he's Martin's the one who brought him in from Japan. Uh, so, yes, he loves his defensive midfielders as a as a as a as a as a, as a, a buffer against the four four two that he's going to run. Uh, although he kind of got into a diamond midfield during the last couple of years he was he, he was here. But that's fine. Um, so, yes, it, th- th- that is a bit of a criticism. But at the same time, I think he also afforded individual players the ability to, to play with flair. Uh, in other words, his style did not stifle creativity if it was otherwise there. A guy like Daniel Palladini was a good example of that. Etienne, again, a good example. Pablo Campos, uh, who, you know, in 2011, Etienne led the league in goals. Pablo Campos was second uh, okay. on the same team. Uh, so uh, he Nick Zimmerman was another example. His best years probably came, with, or at least his best development years. So Rennie d- will not stifle creativity if the player otherwise uh, has it and wants to exude it. Uh, he does not stifle that. He does not stifle personalities. Um, but he, he plays a very he, – he, he coaches a very deliberate style uh, and does not like teams that are going to bleed and give up goals. Uh, you know, it's very Scottish, counterattacking-minded style of soccer, which uh, I think will we'll, – we'll some people won't like. Um, but at the same time, I guess it was when he was here, it was counterbalanced by the fact that we had players with flair who could show their wares uh, and he did not inhibit that. So uh, I, I think we had a bit of a yin and yang here that sort of fit together.
2: And and to your point, that I think uh, in terms of spending money on defenders, defensive midfielders, from what I'm hearing, the uh, United united uh, Indy Eleven has made two signings after Alexis Sanchez, of course. But after Alexis Sanchez, uh, Indy Eleven has made another two signings uh, in the last few days. One of them is a central defender. The other is a central midfielder, a holding midfielder. Uh, both that both played well in the NASL. But I'm guessing they are uh, based on their profiles. I'm guessing they are on, um, if not substantial wages, at least uh, pretty decent wages based on where they're coming from. So um, I think your point is absolutely valid about putting those positions at at the top of his priority list.
0: And KJ, Aaron would... Yeah, earlier this week on Thursday, Aaron and I both got a chance to interview Coach Rennie for the first time. And before I... Separately. Separately. And... I've got the uh, quotes mostly all transcribed, so I'll read a couple of those here in a second. But first thing I wanted to touch on was, uh, Napoon. I believe it was you on Twitter maybe two weeks ago or so. You mentioned that for a brief moment, it looked like p- potentially the Indy 11 would be interested in bringing on a technical director. I guess there was just right. a, a tiny window where that was, I guess, Ursal, Ursal Ozdemir, the owner of Indy 11, was maybe open to the idea. Um, Correct.
2: He interviewed, he interviewed two people people who would have been technical directors
0: cool and so in talking to rennie on thursday um apparently there was a pivot in that regard um and i was able to confirm that there there are no plans for the club to bring a td on board and Rennie was very candid and upfront in explaining that it was going to be him and assistant coach Trevor James uh, taking on all the tre- the technical director responsibilities. So I had an article in the Indianapolis Star. If you haven't seen that, go check that out at IndyStar.com sports. And you'll see uh, some quotes from Rennie. I'm also working on a story. If you're familiar with um, some of our segments we have at Stock Takes, one of our segments is called Tactical Tidbits. So... Pleased to announce that I'm returning. We with do. That. <laughs> I'm returning with that <laughs> segment tonight. Um, so go check that out at SockTakes.com, um, Just kind of a part two, um, totally different, talking tactics on this one um, instead of the technical director stuff. But in talking to to Rennie, you know, I wanted to get right to the point. I asked him about his tactics, and then you know he kind of he didn't touch on everything, so I asked a couple a couple follow ups, and let me just jump right into um, a couple of the quotes, but. As far as his style, he said that, quote, I think in coaching there are two types of coaches, one that wants to have the ball and kind of play an attack, and then another that kind of wants to wait for the opposition to make a mistake. For me, I want to have the ball more and attack more. Um, He also emphasized that he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't like long ball soccer or necessarily want to play bunker down and counter type soccer. He really preaches possession. Uh, he wants to play very possession-oriented soccer with an emphasis in the final third on you know short or mid-distance, off-the-ball, penetrating runs in behind the defense. So that was one detail he pointed out to me. Um, another quote I'll throw in is he says, Over the years, I've quite liked the 4-3-3 formation, but I also like the 4-4-2 and, or 4-2-3-1. And now, as well, I've done some work with the more popular three back type system. So I'm open minded on that part. A lot of games that I have coached, I'd say I have kind of been a 4 3 3 formation. So reading between the lines, that tells me that, you know, if, first of all, this was, he confirmed that this is all contingent, obviously, upon how his roster ends up taking shape, you know. Um,. If you're let's say if you don't have too many true wingers with speed, you, you can only play certain formations or if you're lacking um, CDMs, which that doesn't seem like it'll be a problem for Rennie. But just to throw that out as an example. So, um, of course, all of his quotes were dependent upon the type of personnel he ends up with. But what the vibe I got was that he intends, if possible, to play a four-three-three, 3 and he's open to mixing in others as well. So, Aaron, why don't you talk a little bit about your conversation with Rennie?
1: Yeah, I, I would be happy to do that. Thanks for having me on. And one of the reasons why I love having uh, Neil Morris as a guest is the vocabulary that I get. Not only did he weasel in the word surly probably 15 or 20 minutes ago, which I just really enjoy, he used a word that I had written down before we started, and the word was confident. I um, mean, he said that Rennie was confident. And I, I wrote that down when I, with regards to player supply, he is pretty confident with the amount of teams that are in, in flux and turmoil that there will be plenty of talent for him to pluck from. So the the concept of poaching from NASL teams that aren't able to function or or other teams that have folded in, in some recent weeks, I think is going to be something that we're going to look for. You're going to see a lot of familiar names and faces. So that was one of the major points that I took from my conversation with Rennie. Another one and and this is kind of going back to what Napoon tried to get out of me earlier on in the podcast, which is that no one's safe. I understand that Trevor James is currently working with Indy 11. But when I asked specifically about the coaching staff and named Trevor James specifically, um, it did kind of put Martin a little bit uh on the defensive it made him a little uneasy he didn't want to commit to that and i thought that that was very interesting that at this late stage if i say trevor james is on staff would you like to retain him and he says whoa that's a pretty personal question isn't it and um i don't know is it a personal question i mean you need other coaches so i only know of one coach before you i also happen to know based on conversations i've had um that Indy 11 will be without the services of John Bush as a goalkeeper coach in this season. So Indy 11 fans will not see him return in any capacity. Uh, It's not that surprising. However, Martin Rennie is currently the only coach listed as uh, on staff for Indy 11. And when asked about coaches, Martin Rennie couldn't name any others. So he is obviously working, trying to sign some people. I don't know if Trevor James is safe Based on that kind of you know defensive reaction that he had, it it, lead, it makes me uncomfortable. It doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies. And like the three and the eleven players I had mentioned, you know, I said to Martin specifically, this was the question that I asked directly. I said, "Can you confirm that Brad Ring, Ben Spees, and David Goldsmith are locked in for 2018 USL contracts?" He said, and I quote. I'm not a hundred percent sure, or honestly, I'm not a hundred percent sure. So when you, when you hear that, you know, it doesn't sound like he's interested in bringing them on. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean one thing or the other, but uh, as, um, Neil mentioned just a little bit ago as well, the guy is well steeped in sales and PR. He knows the game. He didn't commit to an answer because he's not a hundred percent sure he can commit to an answer. He doesn't want to have to backtrack. Does that mean they're all safe or all unsafe? I, I really couldn't tell you. What that,
3: I'm sorry. What that means is, having had these conversations with Martin many, many times in the the bunker office in the bowels of Wake Med Soccer Park, what that means is <laughs> he does not
1: want,
3: his first choice is to not retain them, but he will keep them if he can't find anybody to take their place. That's what it means.
1: So and I agree uh, with that interpretation, and I was going to pose that question. This guy is really good at podcasts, by the way. Neil right. Morris, book today. Listen to his podcast, The Inverted Triangle. Uh, He's got it. I thought you meant
2: Martin. <laughs> no, so, no, no. I'm uh, saying while, while we were talking, uh, our club captain Colin Falvey pretty much confirmed that he is leaving the club. He tweeted uh, a minute ago, a couple minutes ago, that he says, "Thank you for the memories and tremendous support of the over the past two years." it was an honor and privilege to have captained your club. Um, So, yeah, I think we all kind of knew this was coming, but I think this is the end also of Colin Falvey, who's been a fantastic, fantastic servant. And I know the three of us really value our conversations that we've had interviewing him after the game and the really good guy. And, I mean, we knew it was coming, but it's sad to see Colin leave the club as well.
1: Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to get to interview Colin Falvey. And an absolute pleasure to watch him on the field. I think last season he was kind of struggling through nursing some injuries. And it might have slowed him down. You know, He started the offseason with hernia surgery. I don't know if everybody remembers that. But off the field he was more than willing to meet with fans and, and talk with people. The guy was excellent about promoting the game. He's been in the United States or in North America playing soccer for a long time he understands that he's helping to build the culture and that was important to him there is another story that we'll get to at another point but he and amin zayed both befriended uh, a young child in the hospital and that child didn't make it and uh, the mother has still uh, been a fan of India 11 the entire time and still gives them gifts and and they've done a lot of things for the community that Not everybody knows about they're they're just really important in uh, the soccer community and and that both Eamon and Colin will be missed for sure.
0: And I'd like to echo those sentiments as well. Shout out to Colin. I want to thank him for all he's done for the club and the community. Uh, One little thing I'll add um, as far as leadership on the pitch If you look at, let's focus on actually the 2016 Indy 11 roster, because I think there were maybe a few less of these um, guys in 2017, but on the 2016 Indy roster, there were up to maybe six or seven guys who had been previously captains on professional soccer teams. So it was a, a veteran team, one of the oldest teams possibly in the world. I think we've talked about that on Twitter before. Um, it was a very old roster, full of veterans, all guys that are leaders, all guys that have been captains. And sure enough, who emerged to the top as the captain among a sea of captains? It was Colin Falvey. So that just shows his character. Um, he he's absolutely the guy to to put this as simply as possible. When he speaks, you listen. You stop what you're doing and you focus. Um, you know, no matter what distractions are going on, he just he's that captivating. He he sucks you in and just draws your attention in and so yeah i was amazed at his leadership abilities um you know just to to rise to the top to become a captain on on a team with so much leadership was just impressive to me and he was a huge part of uh that 2016 season i thought he played very well uh and as you said aaron he did he labored a bit in 2017 but um you know just like all great artists all musicians you know you remember their best album more than their worst so um godspeed (laughs) to colin falvey um, what a great um, couple-year stint he had at Indy 11, and he will be sorely missed, um, along with several other guys. So, moving along, does anyone else have any final thoughts to share on Rennie before we hop to a different topic? Uh,
2: well, I wanted to pose it to Neil if there's anything that else that he, think, he thinks our listeners and the three of us should know about Rennie before we move on.
3: Oh. Uh, well, yeah, I mean... Well, there's a couple of things. I won't dive too deeply into it, but it's probably good to just out of, to mention a couple of things, uh, maybe just sort of bullet points. Uh, you may not have sort of figured this out or it may not have come out in sort of the briefingers you've already had. Martin is a very strong man of faith, um, which is a good thing. Uh, and I remember he was here, and I'm not sure if that sort of his approach has changed in his years since he left Carolina. Uh, but he very much saw soccer as an extension of his sort of evangelism uh when it comes to religion a lot of the players he, he brought in were very very religious uh i have heard over the years and the, the, there sometimes there may have been a schism in the locker room between you know maybe the sides who were more religious and those who were more agnostic um but I never really saw that materialize uh, when it came to game performance. It was, you know, the problems that I've mentioned were the ones that were more demonstrative, and uh, and I'm not the only one who talked about this. But so I, I don't want to sort of demonize this issue or make it bigger than what it is. Because so I actually, ultimately, on balance, think it's it's a good thing, uh, and I think it gives Martin sort of a good grounding uh, as far as his personality and, and otherwise. Uh, but that's something that's probably good to to at least mention. Um, you know, w- one example I would like. You know, I guess w- one sort of example that sort of sums up the the, the good and maybe the, the the cautionary about Martin is the example of T Schipolani. Uh, T had been a good performer in the in the USL Two uh, with Harrisburg City in two thousand and nine. Uh, um, but a lot of times those guys don't get mentioned or get much of a chance. Martin is the one that sort of plucked him out of sort of the, uh, the obscurity late in the 2010 railhawk season and brought him into the club late in the year where he, he was a spark plug. I mean, nobody ever heard of the guys, this weird guy with his pants on backwards. And he was a super sub off the bench, uh, and was and was a crowd favorite. You are an admitted Cipollini fan, aren't you? Uh, huge. Uh, <laughs> Huge, but he also found himself in and out of the lineup and he would perform really well in a game and then not crack the starting 11 and then not play. And after the 2010 season, you know, he went back to South Africa uh, where he was born to, as he told me later, refine his joy of soccer. And it wasn't until Martin left and Colin Clark came in. That Dewan Bader, the, assist, the only assistant who stayed over between the two regimes, called T, who you know they knew T's talent, and they said, "Hey, look, there's been a change here. Don't you want to come back?" And T came back, and he's been one of the best players in the NASL over the last five, six years, um, and and been a term, one of the best Carolina players ever. Uh, so that sort of it, it bespeaks the 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 agony and the ecstasy of, of Martin. You know, he was shrewd enough to find this guy, to bring him in at a key point in the season where he could be a key contributor. Uh, you know, found him as a talent, knew where to plug him in. But at the same time, the management of the player left the player saying, "I don't want to come back." And it was only when sort of change changed on the ground that he came back and, and flourished. So. I think that's sort of a an emblematic summation of, of, of Martin. You know, don't don't you know, everything that you guys have told me over the last you know, ten minutes or so about what you've heard of talking him sort of meshes. I think the only thing that's a bit of a surprise is any notion that he sort of adheres to a four three three. He never did that here. It was always four four two or four five one, but that's because he had a really good stable of midfielders at Carolina. I mean, much stronger than his than his forwards except that 2011 season when Campos and Babar were here. But otherwise, sort of the, the, the makeup of the roster lent itself more to a midfield-heavy lineup. So any notion of an attacking 4-3-3 does not mesh with, with Martin. Okay? Well,
1: I mean, he has a UEFA Pro license now, so who knows? He's He's a changed man. <laughs> yes. A way I think to wrap this this segment up, or or I think Kevin was trying to move us on, is a philosophical question I wanted to get to, and maybe the whole panel could discuss it, however they choose. And this is a question about uh, coaching form. His last stop in Korea ended in uh, June of 2016. He has not been the head coach since June 15th, 2016 does that help him does that hurt him i know he's he's been working and studying and he told me he's been scouting players but does a coach's form need to stay a tip-top shape do you need to be you know watching game film and in a locker room giving passion speeches to players to be you know ready to go at this level i can put that to napoon first and see what happens
2: i mean it's an it's an interesting question in terms of how you approach it because what what Neil started our podcast with talking about how eclectic his coaching is and uh you know how he pulls these players out of nowhere having play having coached in South Korea that gives him an advantage of knowing another league where he might know players that are maybe not South Korean but there are actually a lot of Brazilian players in South Korea by the way maybe he knows some decent Brazilian player or maybe he knows a player uh that we might be able to get in the cheap because let's not forget, one of the things that Hankinson did when he came in was bring in the likes of Nicky Patterson, who you know, was an excellent player for us in the one season he was here. Uh, he brought in the likes of uh, some of the players that went out on loan that, that we really appreciated. So it really helped It really helped Hank uh, in terms of the, the vast knowledge he had about leagues that we don't really consider uh, to be leagues that we sign players from. So that's an advantage, but it's, it's a question it's a, it's a, I think it's a serious question what he's done in the last year and a half, the time off from the game and the fact that the, the team he was coaching at in South Korea was a Division two team that was really struggling. So those are fair questions. And I don't have an answer. I don't really have an opinion. I only have questions about this and I think it's something that we'll just have to keep wait and watch whether his eclectic knowledge is an asset or it's a sign of the fact that he wasn't able to make the cut in American soccer, nor in South Korean soccer.
3: Do you mind if I give an answer to that? Please. Um, and this allows me to bring up a point. I didn't know how I was going to weave in, but that's a perfect example. Um, part of the joy of covering Martin back when I started, he, he when he came to Carolina, he was only 34 years old. Um, his contemporary... Uh, and his counterpart during the three years he was here, who was also in his early 30s, starting out in professional soccer coaching, was Mark DeSantos. Santos. Uh, 2009 is when Mark finally was named interim head coach at Montreal, and their stints parallel- paralleled each other. And I'm telling you, some of the most fun was, though not just the not just the ones where the impact literally chased the referees off of the field, but every game between Carolina and Montreal was like a pitched battle. And it always felt not just because Montreal was cantankerous, but it was these two young 30 something whiz kids who knew that they were mirror mirror images of each other. Uh, And I've talked to Mark about this over the years and Mark remembers everything. And he admits he was like, yeah, it, it was like a rivalry. You know, I had a lot of respect for Martin. He still talks to Martin I think they see a lot of each other in each other, and I think that fueled a lot of their of, the, of their rivalry during those three years when they were to get they were on opposite ends at Carolina and Montreal during USL slash NESL. The reason I bring that up, besides the fact that it was a it was it was a hoop to cover it, uh, is that we sort of saw the same thing with with De Santos after he got sacked from Montreal in 2011. He kind of went into the wilderness uh, down in Brazil, coaching amateur players, uh, finding trying to refine his own love of the sport and finally reemerged in Ottawa in 2014 and had success and then went to San Francisco and had success. So I think, you know, sort of this these sabbaticals, whether forced or, or chosen, I think Rennie has sort of gone through the same thing that Mark did from 2011 to 2014. Uh, and Mark came out of the other end uh, with a renewed enthusiasm, and his talent was not dampened at all. And he essentially found success with two lower division teams. Uh, and I and that and the and I I would draw a similar parallel to Martin because of that sort of that connection that I sort of have in my
1: own mind between the two. That's an outstanding answer. I was. I was wondering, because Napoon dodged so hardcore on my question, (laughs) if you were going to do it, and you actually did it. (laughs) You brought it to it. So, Kevin, do you think...
3: It allowed me to bring up that DeSantos connection that I have like a a ridiculous amount of of nostalgia for. Um, That's why... One of the reasons I'm this enthusiastic uh, uh, supporter of DeSantos is because of those... Those Montreal, Carolina, desantos Rennie days—they were so much fun to cover. They were—they, I mean, so it was a, like a mini novella after, after uh, of each game that they had, where you know, players were fighting and screaming, and coaches were screaming at each other. And it's because they knew they were kind of fighting for the same turf. They were contemporaries. Uh, they had a similar, by the way, they had similar coaching approaches. You know, sort of defensive-minded um it was just they're very much contemporaries and i think i don't know if martin will admit that but mark does
1: so give me another uh coaching clash to watch out for i'm i'm excited about this new concept (laughs) uh we're, we're gonna be watching usl a lot this year i need to know who like who hates each other the most off the field
3: well i well i I don't know uh maybe it's time i had another visit with colin to to find that out but um i i I really don't think that mark and martin hated each other i just think they saw each other as contemporaries fighting over sort of the same become the same young up-and-coming alpha dogs uh i think that's kind of uh kind of the way it was but you know, back in back in '09, again, I'm sounding like the old guy again. You're making me do this. You know, it was a lot of interesting coaches in, in that '09 and uh, USL one. Uh, De Santos was coming in. Rennie came in. Colin Clark was down at Puerto Rico. Uh, Gavin Wilkinson in the in, in Portland Timbers. Bob Lilly came in in Rochester in 2010. Um, and Manny Lagos was in Minnesota. I mean, it was a, there was a, a lot of interesting and good coaches during in that league back then. And I think the, the the coaches then knew it, and they knew they had to be at the top of their game to sort of stand out amongst the crowd. And so, you know, I don't know who hates each other now. Um, I think a lot of these coaches, especially the NESL, is a sort of a confederation of the... There's a confederation between them of the, the woes that have befallen the league. So I don't think anybody's sort of... I think they're they're sort of bound by the, the sort of the travails that have befallen the league, um, but but that but there was a lot of good coaches back there in the 2010 and 09 seasons of USL and 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 Mark and Rennie were sort of the the young kids of the bunch back then and and so again that's why and, and I and I know and I've interviewed Martin a couple of times since he's left uh, uh, Korea for I know, for a couple of things that I've worked on, a couple of articles. Uh, he's not been out sort of divorced from soccer. His nose has been, his ears been to the ground. Uh, he knows what's going on. He knows the players that are around. He hasn't just been sort of, you know, growing a beard and living in a mountain somewhere. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he's been plugged in. And so the fact that he's just going to be coming back to an environment that he's totally unaware of, I wouldn't worry about that.
0: And final thought on Rennie before we move along. I think he confirmed the same date to both you and I, Aaron. But he's expecting his players to ultimately report to training um, around February 7th, he said. So, you know, today's January 21st. We're recording this pod episode. So the guy's got his hands full. He's got a lot of work to do. The whole front office is going to be busy. And look for tons of player announcements to come out of Indy 11 in the next couple weeks. So, Short timeline, a lot of work to be done, but there you have it. Um, We broke down the new Indy 11 head coach, Martin Rennie. Um, We're approaching the hour mark, so we'll let you get out of here very soon, Neil. But before we do so, uh, two other topics we wanted to touch on briefly, uh, which the first one you already said, you don't have too much more to add on to it, but you know, let's go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room, the good old NASL still waiting on the appeal decision of their antitrust lawsuit with the U.S. Soccer Federation. So, Neil, um, you fed your ear to the street. You're, you've been on top of this thing from the jump. Um, how do you assess it in, in its current state? Uh,
3: the, the way I assess it is that you know, first off, regarding the decision for the Court of Appeals, you know, who knows when that's going to come down? I think there was some anticipation it would be late December, or early January. But as I pointed out on Twitter, Courts of Appeals run on their own timeline. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be two or three months from now, but it could be, you know, in a week, or it could be in several weeks. Uh, they're they're, they're not beholden to anybody else's needs or or, or timelines. So. The fact that we're still sitting here, not having decision is not surprising to me. I think the other thing is, you know, for those who are still sitting, waiting to see what the decision's going to be. I think a lot of folks, and maybe, maybe most people understand this now, but I think a lot of folks are missing the fact that, you know, even if a favorable decision somehow comes down for the NASL in this decision, to what end is my question, because. We're sort of saying, well, the league is waiting for this decision to figure out whether we're going to play this year. Well, I think we've sort of seen the disintegration of the league over the last two or three months anyway. I mean, what le- what teams are left in the league? What teams even have a manager? What teams even have players at this point? I mean, even the NESL stalwarts have admitted that, you know, if we got the green light to go ahead this year, uh, it's not going to be until the fall. Uh, because the spring is shot. We just saw the Cosmos sold the rights to Eric Cavillo. I mean, what's left is my point. Now, maybe it's a green light for them to begin to try to reconstitute something and try to play at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. But again, it's one of those things where regardless of what the decision from the Court of Appeals is, I think the practicalities of soccer have already rendered their own verdict. Uh, And I don't know I don't know how the NESL, at least in the short term, uh, can put the pieces back together. You know, you, somebody pointed out the other day, you go to the NESL website and go to the front office page, and there's only one person listed, and that's Reese segel That's it. There's no one left.
0: And the last point we wanted to touch on, Neil, uh, pick your brain about a little bit, is you're very fortunate that you get to witness some very, very high-level women's professional soccer out there in nwsl country so you've been covering um the north carolina courage now for a couple years i believe it is and they looked very amazing last year finished the top of the table got the number one seed in the playoffs made it to the title game fell just short um so finished runner up in the playoffs fell one to nil to the portland thorns fc so talk about your experience covering the courage and what do you expect from the courage in 2018
3: Ah, the, I appreciate you asking that. It was an absolute blast covering women's soccer. I remember, and again, I didn't have a whole lot of interest in in women's soccer before the courage came to town. Not not because of any kind of personal basis, but just there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the type of exposure that lent itself to being interested. Um, there's there's high level college soccer in this area, but you know that the coverage of that is, is spotty at best. I remember going to the first training of the Courage or the first preseason game last year, and there was this play where they got a turnover and and, and ping the ball out to the to the left flank, and I and I was watching from the opposite in uh, line, and you just saw all the players just fill their channels in 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 sync, and and it and it just dawned on me it's like holy cow these folks are incredibly tactically minded, maybe even more so than the men's team that I'd been covering. And I fell in love with it then because it is, it is a, it is a soccer that is very much technical and tactically oriented, which I find to be extremely attractive, especially a team like the courage, which is just, you know, batting down the hatches, all players forward, you know, instant offense that's what they that's what they love so it's a fun team to cover uh it's a very young team a, you know a team that found success maybe earlier than they expected uh, and that's just not me talking their manager says that and so it's a team that has a lot of budding stars but not a lot of stars who believe that they are stars <laughs> um and, and there's a whole in- and i'm not going to bore you too much today with this but there's a very interesting dynamic when it comes to covering the courage Versus what I hear from other reporters who cover other NWSL teams, um, and it's a dynamic that has to do with the, the composition of the players, but also the, the the nature of the ownership and the staff. Uh, and and I'll, I'll be happy to talk about that sometime, but I'm not going to bore you with it today. But it's an interesting dynamic that's unique to this particular team um, that makes them more more amenable to 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 media coverage, or at least more more open towards it. Um, As far as what's going to happen next year, you know, they had a big trade last week. They they acquired the rights to Crystal Dunn from the Spirit and traded away two really good players, the NWSL Rookie of the Year, Ashley Hatch, and probably the most improved player, and now suddenly a national team regular, uh, Taylor Smith, who was the starting right back. It was a high price to pay for Crystal Dunn. Not all the fans are happy about it. Uh, again, the fans that are upset because they're sort of personally attached to players and this sort of lends itself to the indie discussion, you know, it, it's soccer, it's sports, you know, the, these, these players aren't forever, you know, you, you, you can't get too attached. Um, but at the same time, um, it was a high price for them to give up, uh, but they acquired a world-class player who if she's in camp from the start and leaves her Chelsea contract, then they've certainly got a really, really good, uh, player. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about the team this year. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll see how it turns out.
0: And with that gentlemen, any other thoughts you want to add on, whether it's about Rennie or any of the other stuff we talked, talked about today.
2: Just quickly, um, I just got images of Alexis Sanchez in an Indy Eleven <laughs> shirt, the new jersey, and looks pretty good. Looks a little tight on him, but I think it'll be—they'll sort it out. And you know, he's going to be—he's going to be a pretty good player for this year.
0: Yeah, if, uh, if he can crack the—you know—crack the bench. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. This has been Episode Thirty-Eight of the Sock Takes Pod. And make sure you follow our guest, Neil Morris. You can find him at Twitter, at By Neil Morris. Also make sure to follow um, his other outlets, W R A L Fan. That's a Twitter handle, at WRALSportsFan, and at ITSoccerPodcast pa- for his excellent coverage via the Inverted Triangle Podcast. And, of course, you can follow SockTakes at SockTakes and our staff writers at nipoonchopra Seven at a gunyan and at kj boxing again this has been episode 38 until next time we wish you farewell